Do you all appreciate Renee on the... uh... It's a good job. Well, let's open up in a word of prayer. We're one minute early, so that's okay. Amen. Um, Lord, we just thank you for this particular time of the year, um, the nativity time of the year where we really think about your first coming and all of the circumstances that were put into place so that you could make your entrance into our world. Um, We think about the virgin conception, how at the point of the virgin conception, how eternity was um, added to eternally existent deity, and you became uh, the God-man, the only begotten, the Son of God, begotten the monogenes, meaning one of a kind. There has never been anybody like the God-man, and there never will be anybody like the God-man. And he is our only mediator between God and man, which only the God-man could mediate. And if it wasn't for the virgin conception, it would have been impossible. We also acknowledge, Father, that we're living in between the two advents of your Son. Just as he came into our world... He's going to come back one day into our world. And our job as the church is largely to prepare people for that second coming based on the provision that you've already made in the first coming. It's so easy, Lord, even in the Christian world to lose perspective on the basics, but help us uh, as a church, help us as individuals in the midst of the pressures and busyness of a very commercial time of the year help us to really think about reflect upon and share you know what what this is all about and so our culture has set aside this particular time period to commemorate what you've done for us and what you will do for us and we just look backwards with great thankfulness and we look forward with great expectancy because after all he is the reason for the season And I pray these thoughts would be on our minds foremost during this time of the year. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, if you could um, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 11. And verse 1. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1, and as you know, we're continuing our study on the rapture, and we're kind of in a section of the study dealing with questions and answers, and so I guess I'm thinking this, this may be our last study on the rapture. I know that I've said that for five years now. But it just seems to me that we're finished with 2021, and then next week we'll probably do two teachings on Christmas, since we'll just be a day or so away from Christmas. And then the following Sunday is the new year, and we'll probably start something new in the new year. 
Um, I'm leaning very heavily in Sunday school towards the Middle East meltdown, which is um, a verse-by-verse study of Ezekiel 36 through 39, which I did for another ministry, and now I have all this stuff prepared, and so I might as well dump it on you, right? <laughs> so sometimes in the ministry, you gotta, you got to serve up a little stale manna. But it won't, it won't seem like, it won't seem stale to you. You're like, wow, this is brand new vintage stuff. So here I am admitting all my professional secrets. Look at that. So, um, here's the mailbag that came in and just two more questions. The second one I, we answered on pastor's point of view on Friday and Jim's answer was so good, I thought we would just use it here. Uh, and I'm not sure if we'll even get to number two today, but if we do, if we don't, you can find the answer to number two on Pastor's Point of View last, last Friday. So here's a question that came in concerning Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 13. And the question is, some say that there will be no pre-tribulation rapture. Since the two witnesses of Revelation 11, uh, verses 3 through 13, are actually Israel and the church, that will be given supernatural power and gifts of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation. They claim there will not be an actual temple during the tribulation period and that the temple is just symbolic of Christ inside of us. Or on the flip side, Satan will defile the temple or the human body. So this is very common in in church history where people would go to Revelation 11 and basically see in it the church. You know, because after all, every verse in the Bible has to be directly about us, right? We, we don't call that exegesis, we call that narcissus, where I've got to see myself in everything. And so there's a lot of people that think Revelation 11 is really speaking of the ministry of the church in the tribulation, and therefore we will be here for the tribulation, therefore the rapture of the church couldn't be true. So let let me just read to you, just to refresh your memory, on Revelation 11. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 13. It says, Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations that they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive branches and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. I mean, if that's us, I guess we're going to be fire breathers in a sense. So if anyone wants to harm them, um, he must be killed in this way. 
These have the power to shut up the sky so that it, so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look on their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another. Wow, I'm glad we don't do that in our culture. Not that wedding gifts, Christmas gifts are wrong, but you can get a wrong emphasis, right? These, they're so happy that these two are dead that they're actually having a satanic uh, gift exchange. And they will send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet in great fear fell upon those who were watching, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, interestingly, this is taken by many people, and actually many people in church history, to kind of refer to Israel and the church together in the tribulation period. And let me just explain to you why this has nothing to do with the church. This you're familiar with, because we've gone over it before, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 is, a, is an outline of the tribulation period. It says, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things that are and the things that will take place after these things. This is the instructions of Jesus to John while John was marooned on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century. And when Jesus says this, he's actually giving an outline to the book of Revelation. So write down the things that you have seen. That's Revelation 1. That's the image of the glorified Christ that John saw at the end of the first century that that scared him so bad that he fell down as though he were dead. And then he's told to write down the things that are which is a description of the seven churches that were functioning in Asia Minor. And you'll see that section in Revelation 2 and 3. And then he says, write down the things that will take place after these things. And so when he says after these things, and you look at Revelation 4 verse 1, you'll see the expression after these things. So the third section starts in chapter 4, verse 1. It's the longest section in the book of Revelation and goes all the way through the end of chapter 22. 
So write down the things that you have seen, chapter 1, the things that are, Revelation 2 and 3, the things that will take place after these things, Revelation 4 through 22. So that's a basic outline of the book of Revelation. And one of the things that we brought up is the word church is used 19 times total. It's the Greek word ekklesia. It's used 19 times total in section 1 plus section 2. In other words, when you're reading chapters 1 through 3, it keeps saying church, 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 church. It says that 19 times. Then you get to section 3, and it stops using the word church. Um, In fact, if you look just for a minute at Revelation 13, verse 9, just a chapter or two to the right, it says there, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, if you're a student of the book of Revelation and you start from the beginning of the book, you'll recognize that expression. Because it's used seven times in Revelation 2 and 3. What it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then all of a sudden you get to Revelation 13 verse 9 and it uses the almost same expression. But it leaves out what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is uh, pretty common as you go through this section. The word church just isn't there. I mean, it's not even there related to um, expressions that typically describe the church. And, of course, we believe that the church is not there because the church is where? The church is in heaven. She's been raptured to heaven and is in heaven before the vision is fulfilled in chapters 4 through 22. So it is very, very odd that you have 19 references to the church in chapters 1 through 3, and then all of a sudden the word completely disappears. It does show up one time at the end in chapter 22, verse 16, the Greek word ekklesia, where John is just told by Christ to preach these things in the churches. But other than that, there's a blatant omission of the church in that section. And we believe that the reason that is not there is because the church has been raptured to heaven. So you can look and strain and try to find the church all you want back in Revelation 11, the two witnesses. But the truth of the matter is the word isn't used. It's not used in chapter 11. It's not used in any other uh, chapter in chapters 4 through 22. So what you do find, though, is that God's hand is back on the Jewish nation in that time period. Why is God's hand back on the Jewish nation in that time period? Because of something that we're going to be looking at in the main service that follows, the covenant that God made with the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation did not make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with them. And that's a very crucial thing to understand. And when you study the language of that covenant, which we're going to start to do in Genesis 15, you'll see that the language has never been exhausted. You can try to play games with the language all you want, but the truth of the matter is 
when construed in its ordinary sense, God has unfinished business with Israel. In fact, he's got a final seven years on their clock uh, left to tick, as we've talked about. You'll see God's hand in the futuristic section of the book, not on the church to evangelize the world, which is the instrument that God has used for the last 2,000 years. His hand is not on the church. His hand is on the nation of Israel. So in Revelation 7, you'll see the whole planet being evangelized there, not through the church, but through the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each what? Tribe. I mean, why is God's hand not on the church during this time period? Why is his hand back on the Jews? Because the church is in heaven. That's why. And this is part of our belief as we've tried to explain concerning pre-tribulationalism. In fact, as you move into that last section, the whole thing starts looking very, very Jewish. His hand is on the 144,000 Jews, Revelation 7. In Revelation 11, the section I just read, his hand is on the two Jewish witnesses, which seem to do things that look an awful lot like Moses and Elijah, two Jews. And you'll find that his hand is on the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, which, as I'll show you in just a little bit, is a very clear reference to the nation of Israel. So God's hand is back on a nation during this time period, while the church is in heaven praising the Lord. And that would make sense because Jeremiah 30, verse 7, describes this whole time period as a time of distress for who? For Jacob. And it's right there in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it says, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, not the Presbyterian church's distress, not the Methodist church's distress, not Sugarland Bible church's distress, but Jacob's distress. And you see in parenthesis, I've got the two references there where Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So Jacob is a synonym for Israel. I mean, we're not Jacob as the church. Uh, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress. But he, Jacob, will be saved from it. In other words, God is using this time period to bring Israel or Jacob back into right relationship with him. Which means that the church that's already in right relationship with him can't be part of this program. In fact... When these words were articulated, the church was an unknown commodity. It was a mystery. So why would the church that's a mystery when this was revealed not also be a mystery or an unknown commodity on the earth when this is fulfilled? And so these are just standard arguments that you can give to indicate pre-tribulationalism. And... This Revelation 11 doesn't even fit the church because in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So the very definition of the church is we are believers in the Messiah that national Israel rejected 2,000 years ago. And as we believe in that Messiah for personal salvation, we are baptized or identified with a new man called the body of Christ. And in that new man, the national normal distinctions are obliterated. Ephesians 2 verse 14 describes the church as follows. It says, for he himself is our peace who made both groups. Now, what does he mean here by both groups, Jew and Gentile? Jews one group, Gentiles another. Now we've got a situation where we have some Jews and many Gentiles believing in the same Messiah for salvation. What does God do with that group? They're part of the church. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier or the dividing wall. So therefore, (laughs) the church, which knows no distinction between Jew or Gentile, can't be on the earth during a time period when God's hand is back on Israel. You see that? Because what is happening in the tribulation period itself is God is using a Jewish nation to reach the world. And that in and of itself violates the definition of the church because the church consists of not a nation. The church consists of people from all nations. So the more the, more the language gets Jewish, the more the language gets Hebraic, the more it doesn't fit with Paul's very crafted definition of the church that's spelled out in Galatians 3, verse 28, and Ephesians 2, verse 14. So I'm just giving you some reasons why, even before you look at the details of Revelation 11, the church, it's impossible for the church to be here. The first reason is the word church is not used in Revelation 11, nor is it used in that entire futuristic section of the book. Number two, it's obvious as you read this section that God's hand is back on a nation. In the present age, God is not working through a nation. He is working through believers dispersed throughout the earth called the church of all nations. So with all of that being said, you know, those two little problems notwithstanding, how in the, how in the world has it been that our Bible interpretation is so bad? Um, really going back to Augustine in the fourth century, that people come up with these interpretations that put the church on the earth here and other places. And the answer is they use a methodology called allegorizing. This is what Augustine popularized in his book, The City of God, going back to the 4th century. And everybody out there today, for whatever reason, is trying to put a happy face on Augustine. Uh, They even call him St. Augustine. I don't call him St. Augustine. I think the man was heretical in many of the things that he taught. In fact, Augustine has been referred to by the Catholics as the Catholic's Catholic. You know, he basically believed in purgatory 
um, countless other problems with his theology. And one of the things he brought into the church was amillennialism, which is the idea that the church is the kingdom of God on the earth. And the way he brought in amillennialism in his book, The City of God, which is the first formal treatment in church history of any length articulating amillennialism, is he developed the method of spiritualizing the Bible. In other words, his interpretations cannot be sustained through a literal, what I'll talk about here as a literal interpretation of the Bible. They can only be sustained if you allegorize the Bible. So what does it mean to allegorize, or sometimes called spiritualize, the Bible? Basically, what they want you to do is to say, okay, the literal text says such and such, but really what's important is not the literal meaning of the words, but a spiritual interpretation that those words bring in. So they use the language of the text to bring in a supposed higher spiritual meaning that's not evident from the words of the text. That's spiritualizing. Uh, One of the great allegorists in uh, world history was a man named Philo, who lived, I think, a little before the time of Christ, and he brought this into Judaism. And Philo would say things like this, oh, those four rivers there in Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden. And you could read about these in Genesis 2, verses 8 through 14. There's a river called the Pishon. There's a river called the Gahan. There's another river called the Euphrates. There's another river called the Tigris. And he would say, you don't really believe those are four rivers in Eden, do you? Don't you understand the higher meaning? The higher meaning is these are really four parts of the soul. And people would hear that and say, ooh, what an intelligent man. I mean, that really gives me the liver quiver of the day. I mean, that that must be an accurate interpretation. And the interesting thing about being an allegorist or a spiritualizer is you can never lose your job because you're the only one that knows what the higher meaning is, right? So you have to depend upon the clergy or, you know, the higher educated people to give you this higher meaning, which poor little you could never come up with on your own. And so this is all part of the priest, um, the clergy, laity distinction that was developed during the Dark Ages, or the average person. You have to understand this all over Europe prior to the Protestant Reformation. They could not open their Bible and read it for themselves because the Bible literally was chained to pulpits all over Europe. And beyond that, it was in a different language that people didn't speak, Latin. And this idea of having your own Bible is something really that Martin Luther started. And why would you have your own Bible if you can't understand it anyway? And it's the priests that are helping you attain this higher meaning. Because after all, they have the education, right? And so what they must be saying is true. 
And this is what you call allegorizing and spiritualizing the Bible. And this was what Augustine taught the existing church at the time to do. Um, sadly, even in the 21st century, you'll hear people allegorizing the Bible. Uh, one of the early sermons I heard as a new Christian was the gates around the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2. There's a fish gate there, and the preacher would say, you know, fish, Jesus mentions fish, we should be fishers of men, so that gate represents um, evangelism. And then you go to another gate, and it's talking about water, a water gate, Nehemiah 2, and the preacher would say, water, of course, represents the Holy Spirit, so that gate over there represents the Holy Spirit. And what are they doing there with the Bible? Um, they might be preaching a sermon that, that sounds good and sounds educated, but obviously the ideas that they're using don't come from Nehemiah 2. They're allegorizing. They're, they're using the language of the text to bring in some kind of higher meaning. And that's why so many sermons that you hear today in modern evangelicalism it's like, great sermon, wrong passage. You know, if you're going to teach a sermon on evangelism, I can recommend to you countless verses that deal with that subject, but it isn't going on in Nehemiah 2. If you want to talk about the walk of the Holy Spirit, there are countless passages I could recommend to you, but that's not what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 2. The only thing it means in Nehemiah 2 when it says the fish gate is it means they took fish in and out of the gate. Well, what's the water gate? Well, they took water in and out of the gate. Now, there's also a a manure gate, a dung gate. Nobody ever spiritualizes that. I don't know what you do with that. But, you know, it's like, but nobody wants to hear a sermon on a gate where you take water in and out of it. We all want this higher meaning. And after all, we pay all these guys to go to seminary, right, to learn all these higher meanings. And so you're listening to a lot of sermons and you're saying, you know, that is a really good sermon, but he sure isn't using the right passage of the Bible to teach that. And this is the practice of allegorizing. The problem with allegorizing is there's no control on the mind of the interpreter. One allegorist says the four rivers mean one thing. Another one says no, they mean four points of the compass or whatever you want to come up with. And at the end of the day, the text is no longer in authority. It's the mind of the preacher. And, of course, during the Dark Ages, the poor people didn't even have Bibles to validate what the preacher was saying and couldn't read the Bible even if they wanted to because of illiteracy. And when you start to understand this, you start to understand why Martin Luther put such a high emphasis on literacy, raising the literacy standards, because he saw how the people were being abused under this allegorical system. And if you if you can't read the Bible, and if you're told, even if you could read it, you can't understand it, you would not believe the position you're placed in, in terms of being abused. The famous line, and this is the thing that really upset Luther, the famous line was from Johann Tetzel, a priest, who was going around and telling the ignorant people, 
you know, not the stupid people, but they were ignorant because they couldn't read and they were told they couldn't understand. And Tetzel would say, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And he would preach these sermons, you know, about their deceased relatives, you know, crying out in torment or crying out in purgatory. And he would say, just put the money in the coffer and we'll pray them out of purgatory. Now you say, well, how could they have, how could the laity have fallen from, for that? Well, if you don't have a Bible to validate where is purgatory in the Bible and you can't read, then you're just completely dependent upon the priesthood. And so I've been to Vatican City. Um, we actually took a, a cruise and part of the cruise was touring Vatican City. And you would not believe the immeasurable wealth that is in that place in terms of paintings. and I mean, you, you wouldn't believe how that place is decked out. And, and I'm not kidding. When you step down the steps outside of the gates of Vatican City. By the way, you probably know that the Pope is calling for a world without borders, right? While he himself lives in a gated community. So go figure that out. But when you literally step a step or two down the steps outside of the gate, the poverty level is so strong that people immediately come up to you and ask for this or ask for that a handout, when they have all of this wealth and all of this stash in Vatican City. And so, since I was one of the co-teachers on the trip, um, when we were safe and back in the boat, uh, I said, I hope you guys realize that this whole thing is a sham. Because, number one, they're trying to tell you that Peter was the first pope. And Peter died in Rome. When 1 Peter 5 verse 13 very clearly tells you that he spent his waning years in Babylon in the east, not Rome in the west. So Peter was not the first pope. And of course they deny that by saying you're taking 1 Peter 5 verse 13 too literally. See that? See, if when you deliteralize it, it gives the clergy the power. And then I also said, are you guys all impressed by the massive amount of wealth that you saw? Do you know what you understand where all that wealth came from? That came from over a thousand years of bilking people and telling the ignorant peasants that you better pay the right fee to get your aunt and uncle or whoever removed from purgatory. I mean, all of that money is, is stolen. It's graft. I mean, we're, we get upset today about television preachers that, you know, abuse their positions and tell people, you know, if you give to this ministry, you're going to get healed. I mean, what do you think the Roman Catholic Church was doing for over a millennia? Well, pastor, the Roman Catholic Church is one of the richest churches in the world. Well, of course it is. And I'm explaining to you how they became one of the richest churches. And this is the system that... Um, Augustine in the 4th century brought in, and this is really what upset Luther. Luther was really upset that everybody was being just ripped off and abused by this system. And I think the thing that really um, pushed Luther over the edge was what Tetzel was saying. 
When the coin in the coffin rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And Luther said, that is enough of this. And he tried to reform the church from within. You know, he was, he was uh, trying to be a Roman Catholic priest at the time. And he kept arguing that these things violate the literal interpretation of the Bible. So very sadly, allegorizing even post-Protestant Reformation continues on because the Protestant reformers, for whatever reason, um, didn't deal with the subject of eschatology. They allowed that practice in eschatology to continue while they tried to reform the church in other areas. By the way, if you're interested, and I am really, believe it or not, the type of person that likes to promote my own stuff, but... I did write a book about this that's very short and readable. It's even got some cool pictures in here. And so if you kind of want to understand what it is I've been trying to explain, I mean, this book will give you a brief summary. And we have those here at the church for people uh, in the building. You know, if they're interested in it, just let me know and we'll get that to you. So you notice that I'm giving this out for free, so I'm not trying to abuse you and make money, right? All right, just want to be clear on that. So why is it that people think that Revelation 11, the two witnesses, is about the church? Well, they move into allegorizing. So they'll say things like, well, you know, this fire that's coming out of their mouths, that's the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, you know, as we preach it. Well, that's not what the passage says. I mean, what it says is fire is going to come out of their mouth. Well, how's that going to happen? I don't know. But that's apparently what's going to happen at some point. It talks about their ministry in and near the temple. Well, that's the body of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what the passage says. It just talks about a temple. And so the only way to make this thing work concerning um, making the two witnesses somehow about the church is you have to go into the practice of allegorizing. The words of the text aren't significant. What is really significant is the higher meaning that the allegorist will bring in. So that's why in the reform camp you'll hear people say, the book of Revelation is so symbolic, nobody can understand it. Well, why would they say that? Because they don't want little old you to understand it. They want you to go to them for an interpretation. And the only way they can convince you that that works is by convincing you that you don't have the intelligence, you don't have the education, you don't have the foresight to interpret it correctly. You're just a lay person. Who who, who do you think you are? And what I'm explaining is Roman Catholicism in the area of eschatology is alive and well in Christianity. The reformers certainly uh, may have fixed some things in the area of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, but they left unchecked this wild speculative approach to eschatology, which at the end of the day is an authority move. It moves the authority from the text to the mind of the interpreter. It moves the authority from the laity to the clergy. And so that's what we mean by this practice of allegorizing. I like to use this here. It says he or she who spiritualizes tells spiritual lies. 
Why are they telling you spiritual lies? Because Genesis 2 has nothing to do with the four parts of the soul. It's got nothing to do with it. I didn't even know there were four parts of the soul, quite frankly, until I read Philo. Um, Revelation 11 has absolutely nothing to do with the church on the earth. And Nehemiah chapter 2 has absolutely nothing to do about evangelism and the walk of the Holy Spirit. And people will hear a sermon and they'll get the liver quiver of the day and they'll talk about how relevant it is to their personal life and how meaningful it is. And the truth of the matter is they've just been fed that particular Sunday morning an absolute lie because the text itself is not dealing with those subjects. So with that being said, when you look at Revelation chapter 11 verse 1, it mentions a temple. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means there's going to be rebuilt one day a what? A temple. Now, why is that so hard to understand? Because all the other references to the temple in the Bible are always literal. Solomon's temple, the first temple built, was literal. The temple that the exiles rebuilt and refurbished was literal. Ezekiel 40 through 48 mentions a temple in the millennial kingdom. And so if temple one is literal and temple two is literal and temple four is literal, then my goodness, maybe temple number three yet to be rebuilt functioning in the tribulation period will be literal as well. Zero to do with the church, zero to do with our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, take a look there at verses 2 and 3. It mentions verse 2, 42 months. It mentions verse 3, 1,260 days. Well, gee, Pastor, can you give me the secret interpretation of 42 months and 1,260 days? Here it is. It's talking about a time period of 42 months, which is a synonym for 1,260 days. Yeah, but what's the secret meaning? Well, sorry to disappoint. Uh, no secret meaning. The Bible means what it says and says what it means, right? Those are the different divisions of the 70th week of Daniel. 70th week of Daniel is going to stretch exactly seven years. And in Revelation 2 and 3, it's talking about the different halves of it. That's all it's dealing with. Well, why do you take 42 months and 1,260 days, why do you take it so literally? Here's why. The first 69 weeks, 69 past, 70th week yet future. The first 69 weeks happened with ironclad mathematical precision. I would encourage you to go back into our studies on the book of Daniel where we dealt with that. I think we spent six weeks on that. Some people were worried we were going to be studying the 70 weeks longer than 70 weeks. But we went into all the detail about that and we showed that that prophecy started in Nehemiah 2 and ran exactly till Palm Sunday to the exact day. 
In fact, Harold Honer, one of the greatest minds, I think, my, my professor, that ever looked into this issue, demonstrates this about as clearly as it can be demonstrated in his classic work, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, which you ought to, you ought to get that and put it in your library. Because this time of the year, everybody's talk, asking me questions about, well, you know, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? And all of these kinds of questions. And my only answer is, read Harold Honer's Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, where all of that is answered. This was part of his Cambridge dissertation. The man had two PhDs. And one of his PhDs he pursued in Cambridge, and all of those European scholars, okay, which don't, who don't really agree with our presuppositions concerning inspiration and inerrancy, uh, all signed off on everything that he said. And he summarizes it in his chronological aspects of the life of Christ, and he shows that the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy were fulfilled to the exact day. In fact, because he, he was my dissertation reader, I, had, I, I got a chance to talk with him all of the time. He's now with the Lord. But um, I would tell him, you know, I would just ask him questions like, you know, did you try to make this fit? I mean, did you come up with a day for the start of the 69 weeks and come up with another day randomly for the end of the first 69 weeks just to make it fit? And he, he looked at me square in the eye. He said, you know what? I had no idea what I was doing. I came up with date A. I came up with date B based on my study of secular history. And then I wanted to see if this fit with the 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. And he says, I was as shocked as anybody to discover that the whole thing was fulfilled on the exact day. And in this book, The Chronological Life of the uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, he has a little sentence in there where he says, the results were better than expected. And I'm like, gosh, talk about the understatement of the year. Better than expected. I mean, he was just shocked that it happened exactly like God said through a literal interpretation. So the point is, if the first 69 weeks happened with mathematical precision, why do we think we can allegorize the numbers here? Since they're part of the 70th week yet to be fulfilled. Now, have you ever asked yourself this? When Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, why does Jesus make reference to the exact day? You ever ask yourself that? Luke 19, verse 42, saying, if you had known in this day, he says in verse 44, because you, Israel, did not recognize the time of your visitation. Why does Jesus keep making reference to the time and to the day? He does that because he knew what Harold Honer later retrieved for us, that the prophecy was fulfilled to the exact day. And he was holding the nation accountable for understanding that. So therefore, for people to say, well, 1,260 days, the part of it yet fulfilled, just make it to be whatever you want, is um, essentially it's insanity. You're 
in essence, what you're doing is you're saying that the Holy Spirit changed horses in midstream. Why would he fulfill the first 69 weeks to the exact day and then the final 70th week just make it whatever you want it to be? doesn't make any real sense. Um, if you look at verse 4, it says, These are my two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. If you've been following our teaching on the book of Zechariah, you know what the two olive uh, what, what the two olive trees are. It's God's supernatural empowerment of Joshua and Zerubbabel during the post-exilic time period. Joshua and Zerubbabel were two real people, right? So just as the Holy Spirit inspired or empowered Joshua and Zerubbabel, two real people. In the book of Zechariah, the Holy Spirit, in the same way, is going to inspire two real people in the events of the tribulation period, the two witnesses. Um, When you drop down to verse 6, and it says, These have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. So that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. In other words, one of them shuts up the sky so that it cannot rain for exactly 42 months. Now, does that ring a bell anywhere in your Bible? Um, That's exactly what Elijah did. And we're told from Luke 4, verse 25, and James 5, verse 17, that Elijah shut up the sky so that it would not rain for exactly how long? Three and a half years. So I'm just giving you evidence why you can't just willy-nilly apply a spiritualizing interpretation to this. When you look down at verse 8... It says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where was their Lord crucified? The city of Jerusalem. So what is this talking about? The city of Jerusalem. Now I'll explain what mystically means in a second. But you're only allowed biblically to allegorize the Bible or to give a spiritual meaning when the text tells you it's okay to do so. And here the text says it's okay to address a spiritual meaning because that literal city will be characterized by an atmosphere that characterized Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, depravity. Egypt, bondage. So that literal city will have an atmosphere of those two cities. And I'm only allowed to do that because the text says what? I've got it underlined. Mystically. If the text didn't say mystically, the only thing I'm supposed to do with that verse is take it as the literal city. This is the literal city, but let's add a spiritual dimension to it. And I'm only free to understand it in that sense because the Holy Spirit put a word in there to tell me it's okay. And then the Holy Spirit tells, tells me what the interpretation is. 
Um, it goes on and it talks about their dead bodies, verse 9. The fact that the world is going to be so happy that these people die, they're going to send gifts to each other. And you can see how literal that is. We do that at Christmas time. It talks there in verse 11 about 3.5 days. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a literal period of time. You go down to verse 13, and it talks there about an earthquake. It talks about a tenth of the city destroyed. You know, not four-fifths or whatever, but a tenth. It talks there about a literal city. And it talks about 7,000 people dying. Do you see how ironclad these terms are? I mean, the Holy Spirit does not want us to look at this and see some kind of magical meaning in it. He wants us to interpret it as it is written. And people say, well, surely the numbers in the book of Revelation, those are symbolic, aren't they? No, they're not. Robert Thomas, in his very excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, says, quote, No number in Revelation is a verifiably symbolic number. But isn't seven the number of uh, completion? Well, it probably is. But that doesn't change the fact that there were seven churches. How do I know that there were seven churches? Because I can count. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. There's going to be seven bowls. Seven seals. Seven trumpets. And when Jesus returns, he's going to rule not for 999 years. He's going to rule for exactly a 1,000 years. And the problem is we're not taking the hermeneutic method of interpretation that Luther used to rescue the church from a 1,000 years of the Dark Ages. You have to understand what Luther did. He rescued Christendom from a thousand years of the Dark Ages by, he kept saying, literal interpretation over and over again. And in his uh, debates with Dr. Eck, the Roman Catholic apologist, um, he would, Luther would say things like this, um, Eck gives me the lanterns when I'm asking for the sun. In other words, Eck is giving me what this Catholic priest said, what that Catholic priest said, what this Pope said, what that Pope said, because in Roman Catholicism, the Pope speaks ex cathedra, right? The Pope speaks from the chair, and that's why you have such disagreements with your Roman Catholic friends, because your source of authority as a Protestant is limited to 66 books. When you talk with the Roman Catholic friends, their source of authority is much bigger, isn't it? Because they believe that when the Pope talks, the Pope is speaking for God. And every time the Pope opens his mouth, and some of them are very embarrassed by what the current Pope is saying, by the way. The reason they're embarrassed is because of the doctrine of ex cathedra. When the Pope speaks, he speaks from the chair. So when you talk with your Roman Catholic friends, they're thinking of all this tradition. They're thinking of all of these papal statements, sometimes called papal bull, which is a name. I'm sorry, I just 
That's got to be a God thing, calling it that. Papal bull. And they're talking about what all the priests said. And little you just wants to talk about 66 books. That's why you're with your Roman Catholic friends and you always can't seem to get on the same page. They have a different source of authority than you have. And this is the, Luther's whole issue with Dr. Eck in his debate there called um, the Diet of Worms, etc. So there is no number in Revelation that is verifiably a symbolic number. So this gets into a whole big discussion. And look at this. I said I was going to end the rapture study today. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. But let me just preface this a little bit. This gets into the whole subject of interpretation. When speech is used, it doesn't matter how grand the speech is. It doesn't matter how eloquent the speech is. Linguistic communication only comes in two forms. It comes through something called denotative language. In other words, plain language. Or it comes through something called connotative language, figurative language. And when people talk, they're only using one of those two forms. And typically, when you listen to someone talk, you can figure out if they're speaking denotatively or connotatively. So I wake up this morning, and my wife says, how did you sleep? And I said, I slept really good. I slept until 8 a.m. And she doesn't say, hmm, what do you mean by 8 a.m.? Are you talking about some kind of mystical interpretation? No, she knows that I'm speaking what? Denotatively. Plain literal. By the way, today is my 23rd wedding anniversary. Isn't that cool? So I say to my wife, happy 23rd wedding anniversary. And she doesn't say, yeah, but what do you mean by 23? Because it really feels like 46, quite frankly. Because 23 means 23. And then I'll say, yeah, I woke up at 8 a.m. and I slept like a log. She doesn't say, hmm, I know our last name is Woods, but did you turn into a piece of wood last night in the bed? No, because I said I slept like a log. And I'm using a figure of speech called a... Simile, so obviously I'm not speaking there denotatively, but connotatively. So typically when you talk to people, you understand which is which. And sometimes, in very rare cases, you can get them flipped. And that's where communication breaks down. Because I remember one time, and this happens more as you get older, I took my cup of coffee and I put it in the microwave. And I forgot to set the timer. It was just running. And so it was kind of bubbling over. And I was in the office working. I forgot the cup of coffee was there. And my wife says, honey... Um, your cup is overflowing. And I said, you know what? You're right. My cup is overflowing. 
I am so blessed in life and God has taken such good care of me. She says, no, your cup is overflowing. So I was interpreting something connotatively which she wanted understood denotatively. In fact, one time I was in the closet and I was trying to put my wardrobe together. We were running late and she knew I was in the closet and she said, come out of the closet. And I'm like, "Woo! what does she mean by that? <laughs> so she was speaking denotatively and I was interpreting connotatively. You follow? So that's what happens in language and language can break down like that. But typically when people are speaking to each other, they understand each other in denotative talk and connotative talk. It, the Bible was written in language, Right. Now, I realize it's Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, but it's still language. And when God is talking to you, he will either use denotative language or connotative language. And all you have to do is figure out which one is which. And once you figure out which one is which, interpreting the Bible is very easy. So when the Bible talks about Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what kind of speech would that be? Denotative. When the Bible says things like the mountains clap and all of that kind of stuff, and when Jesus calls himself the bread of life, what kind of language is he using? He's using connotative language. So you're doing this all of the time in ordinary communication, Denotative, connotative. And when you're reading the Bible, you're doing it all the time as well. Denotative, connotative. It's just in the book of Revelation, it's a tad more difficult. That's all. Because the book of Revelation, unlike any other book, employs more symbols. Yet, you're using the same method to decipher the book of Revelation. Because God in the book of Revelation wants to be understood. you guys agree with that? Henry Morris reminds us that it must be stressed that Revelation means unveiling and not veiling. God did not give you the book of Revelation to confuse you. In fact, he gave you the book of Revelation to bless you. Because the book of Revelation is the only book that we have that promises a blessing to the reader. So why would God seek to bless you through the book of Revelation by giving you some ultra-symbolic book that you can't understand? In fact, the very title of the book of Revelation is Apocalypsis, which means the what? The unveiling, the disclosure. By the way, don't call it the book of Revelations. It's not the book of Revelations, many visions like Daniel. It's one connected vision that John saw on the island of Patmos. The very name itself means disclosure. And because God wanted the future disclosed, he communicated it to us in language Denotative language, connotative language. It's just as you're working your way through the book of Revelation, you have to figure out what's denotative and what's connotative. You already do that in ordinary communication. You do that when you read John's gospel. 
you do that when you do, when you read the book of Romans. It's just in the book of Revelation, it's, it's, you, it requires a little bit more work because there's more symbols. Yet, there are clues given in the text itself. And if you're a keen to these clues, you'll know what's denotative and what's connotative. The word spiritually, I see that. Hmm. Now we have a connotative interpretation coming. The word sign, when I see that, hmm. Now I have not a denotative interpretation coming, but a connotative interpretation. How about the word like or as? What kind of figure of speech is that? It's a simile. Now we're not dealing with a denotative interpretation, but a connotative interpretation. How about when I see all these weird animals in Revelation 3, verse 2? Lion, bear, leopard. I mean, is that literal lion, bear, leopard like I would see in the zoo? No, because I have Daniel 7. Where Daniel 7 tells me exactly what what each animal represents. Because those animals represent, anybody know? Nations. In fact, Daniel tells you exactly what nations they are. First uh, Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And so when I see the identical animals showing up in Revelation 13, verse 2, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is not a uh, teaching here on zoology that the Holy Spirit is giving me. It's not a denotative interpretation, but a connotative interpretation. How about the harlot on the beast? Well, Revelation 17, verse 18 tells me that the harlot represents a... City. I mean, the text tells me that. So therefore, I don't take the harlot in a denotative sense. I take the harlot in a connotative sense. How about the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars? If a woman got too close to the sun, wouldn't she burn to death? I mean, it would be kind of absurd, wouldn't it, to see somebody so close to the sun but not burning up. So if I interpret that denotatively, it would lead to an absurd result. And because a denotative interpretation would lead to an absurd result, I guess I'm supposed to understand it connotatively. So what I'm trying to contend for is... All I'm doing in the book of Revelation is I'm using the same method that I would use in ordinary communication to decipher who the two witnesses are. Yes, the book of Revelation does use symbols, but when the symbols are in play, there is a textual clue alerting me to that fact. And so all of that being said, who are the two witnesses in Revelation 11? They're basically two witnesses in Revelation 11 that are going to use, be used prophetically um, by God to do his work in one of the halves, I would argue the first half of the tribulation period. And if I'm coming up with some kind of interpretation that, no, they're really the church, I've moved away from... Literal interpretation into the Augustinian model called allegorization.
You follow? So, did I just talk for an hour answering one question? I think I did. So we need to close in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word and your truth and grateful for um, what it speaks into our lives. Help us to be good stewards of your word as we, we seek to rightly interpret and divide your word in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Happy short intermission.